How's everyone doing? Awesome, awesome. Everybody uh, have a blast playing in the snow. I know you're thinking, what is going on with Fudd? Why is he wearing a hat? He never, ever wears hats, ever. And now he's got a snow hat on. Is he crazy? Is, or does he just want to be cool like Jordan? Well, there's a couple. Yes, I always want to be as cool as Jordan. Although I know I'll never attain to it. But, uh, so I had a, uh, a thing removed from my forehead. And it would be a lot more distracting for you to see this massive bandage on my forehead. You would never listen to anything I say. And so, since it's a winter day anyway, I'm going to be as cool as attempt to be as cool as Jordan by wearing a hat like Jordan. But it's because there's a huge bandage underneath here that's just massively distracting. So, there you go. So, yeah, for some reason today I'm going to preach on a ski hat. It's never done it before. Probably the last time I'll ever do it, but that's that's what's up. So, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13. Actually, we've been going through the book of Acts. We took a break during Christmas, and I mean, I am like overjoyed to finally be back to the book of Acts. So um, we have been, if you haven't been here, we've been preaching through the book of Acts uh, for a while now, since I think July, and we are now coming up to the book, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 13. Now, if you remember last time, whenever we were looking at chapter 12, Uh, We actually went 1 through 24, 1 through 24. We didn't do verse 25 because 25, even though the chapter divisions are like this, 25 should actually be not with chapter 12. It should be with chapter 13. So um, anyway, so we're actually going to do 12, 25 through 13, 12 today. So uh, if you have a Bible, open up there. I'm going to, if you don't have one, by the way, you can look underneath you and just keep that it's all yours. You can use it for the rest of your life, or you can give it away to people that don't have Bibles. Those blue and white ones, we buy those for a dollar a piece so that you can, you'll take them and give them away to people. So really, like you are free to take as many as you want all the time and give them away to as many people as you want. They're, they're your handout Bibles, so you don't have to like go buy them at Walmart. You can just take those or Lifeway or whatever. So anyway, I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to jump in. Uh, and I'll, I'll give us, a, since it's been like a month, since we've been in the book of Acts, I'll, I'll give us a little bit of an update of kind of like, oh yeah, okay, that's what's going on. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love, your mercy that you've given to us. We thank you that um, so far, uh, it seems like everybody drove here safe and everybody's doing all okay. Uh, we pray that <clears throat> you would <clears throat> bless this time. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the countless volunteers that showed up this morning. Um, and ran around and scurried around and got things set up for us as we're in our mobile state still setting up each week. And thank you for their hearts to serve, their love for the church, their love to uh, help people. And we thank you for those that are even back there watching the kiddos right now that because we don't have two services today, won't be able to be in the service. We thank you for their hearts to want to love the children well as we look at your word. We pray that as we look at your word today, that... uh, there would be a remarkable internalization. It's so easy for us to, especially in the book of Acts, a narrative on how the church got started, to think about that's how they did it, and it doesn't have any application for us. So I pray, God, that you would, would, in these moments, help us see that the Holy Spirit calls every one of us to ministry, and just like Paul and Barnabas are called to ministry here, that we are as well, and there's direct applications that we can make. We pray that you would do that for us. 
Grace in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 1225 is the decisive turning point in the book of Acts. It is the decisive turning point. Look at 1225. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now that doesn't sound decisive, but it's the decisive turning point. From this point right here, 1225 and following, everything changes. If you've been with us, you know that the book of Acts, uh, the key verse, if you will, is Acts 1-8. Acts 1-8 is where uh, Luke, as he's writing, tells us how he's going to outline the entire uh, 28 chapters that he's written. And, it, and Acts 1-8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And here it is. You will be my witnesses, the Greek word martureo, where we get our word martyr from. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So, so far in the book of Acts, we've seen the, the disciples be witnesses in Jerusalem. And then we saw the expansion of how they've started doing their, their gospel witness um, in Judea and Samaria. 1225 is the decisive turn in the rest of the book of Acts where they start taking the gospel or they're going to be witnesses now to the ends of the earth. This is the verse where everything switches and you can see right there in 13.1 where it starts. This is where there's a fading of Peter and a, and a uh, kind of more presence of Paul where the, Peter represents kind of that gospel to the Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and now Paul represents that gospel to the ends of the earth. So this is a decisive shift, if you will, in, in the book of Acts. Now, if you remember, uh, chapter 12 is, is out about how Peter escaped prison. So we haven't really heard about what's going on with Paul and uh, Saul and Barnabas. So if you want to, if you look over in chapter 11, you can remember what was going on in chapter 11. So um, in chapter 11, the, the church in Antioch was getting, was getting planted. If you remember, we talked about these are some key distinctions of a church plant as we looked at chapter 11. And so as they were going to 11, Barnabas had got to, a chapter, uh, got to Antioch. And as he's in Antioch, he's thinking to himself, you know, well, there's no way I can help this, this church plant. So he had traveled from Jerusalem up to Antioch and he was Antioch. And he was thinking, I can't do all this work by myself. So if you go to verse 25, you see Paul, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He thinks to himself, there's a guy that's been converted to Jesus, far more gifted than I am, because Barnabas is just amazing. He's so humble. I'm going to go get somebody that can do this work in Antioch, and he's going to be awesome. So he goes over to Tarsus, he gets Saul, he brings him back, and then it says uh, in verse 26, they stayed there for a whole year trying to help people be discipled, and and in Antioch, these disciples are first called Christians. And so they spent a whole year in Antioch, and then you can see in 27 and following, now these days prophets came from Jerusalem. Uh, down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So they were in Jerusalem. They went north, even though it says down, that's because it's downhill. And they went to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold the spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending uh, it to the elders by the hands of Paul, Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul left Antioch and went down to Jerusalem to take money to the people that were going to be experiencing a famine. So they spent a year in Antioch. They went down to Jerusalem. They needed to take the gift from this brand new church plant who's willing to send money, pretty amazing, down to Jerusalem. So now we're popping over here to 1225 and it says that Luke's just jumping right back over, assuming that you're, you're following since he said what happened back in 11. And he says, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So that means they left Jerusalem and they went back up to Antioch, and this time they brought John Mark. 
rich guy, um, Barnabas' little nephew, uh, and he's kind of like the intern, if you will. So they're bringing John Mark along with them. Now, I want to, before I jump into 13, make some applications for us about this real big narrative shift that's going to happen. Because if you've read the, uh, the book of Acts, what you've been studying, Peter's the main character. I mean, there's just no doubt in our minds in the first 11 or 12 chapters, the main character of the book of Acts is Peter. He's the one that preaches, um, and, and when the Holy Spirit comes, he's the one that we just saw uh, came out, got busted out of jail. He's the one that preaches the gospel to Cornelius. So he, he's the main character. But as I said, there's just going to be this fading into the background of Peter and kind of pulling Paul up into the, into the forefront. Uh, except for chapter 15, uh, Peter won't be mentioned again in the book of Acts. And that's just because... They happen to find themselves in Jerusalem, and they're talking to the Jerusalem council. Peter stands up and says one thing, and that's it. So um, there's not going to be any more mention of Peter. And I always just found that kind of amazing. I thought, how is that possible? Peter's like number one. He was the most important of the 12, if you will. And so I always thought that you know, Luke just liked Paul more, uh, <laughs> that he didn't really care for Peter. Um, but I don't think that that's it. And I've already hinted towards what it is. I don't think that Peter, I mean, I'm sorry, that the Luke, the writer, likes Peter or Paul more. What I think he does like is the mission of God more. And so because he loves the mission so much, he's just going to tell the story of how God is using certain players to carry out his mission. So in the beginning of, of, the, of the book, God's using Peter to be the, the witness in Judea and Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria primarily. And then as we shift, the person that's going to do that is Paul. So it shows us that Luke primarily cares about the mission of God the most, and that's why he writes the book the way he does. It's not that he, he likes Paul more or Peter more or whatever. But here's the application for us. Because um, as we look at it, uh, Peter will stay in Jerusalem for basically almost the rest of his life. Towards the very end, he does go to Rome, and he, he eventually is crucified, upside down per his request. Uh, but most of the time, because he is... An apostle called to the Jews, he stays in Jerusalem. Paul has a different calling, which we'll see. There's a shift in verse 9 here where he takes that calling on full on. Uh, But his calling is to the Gentiles. And so the application for us is this. Some of us are going to be Peter in ministry. Some of us are going to be Peter. Some of us are going to take the first part of the mantle of the ministry. Um, We're going to stay local for our entire life. Uh, We're going to serve Jesus well, we're going to see fruit, and then we're going to hand it off to someone else. That's probably going to even maybe be differently gifted than us, and wouldn't do it exactly the way we would, but uh, they're going to do the next thing, if you will. But some of us are going to be Paul. Some of us won't stay local. We'll be handed a ministry that started by someone else, and we're going to always stand on other people's shoulders, and because of our gifting and our calling that the Lord has given us, we're going to take this ministry to new places. All of you are going to be Peter's and Paul's. And there's other variances. But um, I think that's important for you to, to hear. Because both are called by God. Neither one are more important. If you're Paul, I mean, if you're Peter, and you're going to stay local your entire life, and you're going to serve the Lord well, and, and, and not necessarily take things to next levels, but you're going to hand what you've been doing off to someone else, and you're thinking to yourself, wait, I'm not in full-time ministry. He's just talking to the full-time ministry people. No, I'm talking to everybody. And we're going to get to that in just a second. I'm talking to every one of you. I, it doesn't matter with me if you sell tires or change oil or, you know, you deliver milk. Like, or you work in a church full-time. This is every single one of you. But some of you are going to be Paul. And what I want you to realize is this. 
Both people are called by God. Both people are extremely important. Neither of those people can be done without. The ones that stay local their whole life are the ones that take things to new levels. Embrace your calling. Play your part well. And be thankful that the Lord has called you to that. You don't have to worry. If you're, if you're always wanted to be Paul, but you're Peter, don't fret. It's not a big deal. If you're always, or the reverse. Play your part well. And be thankful that the Lord has called you to where you are. Now, Paul and Barnabas here uh, haven't been mentioned, which I've already kind of brought us into what's going on. We last saw them uh, in chapter 11. And now they're uh, bringing John Mark with them. And this turn here, which we're going to see in 13 and following, is how they're going to be called into what is really Paul's very first missionary journey. So this first missionary journey um, is where they go... Uh, over to an island, and as we read this, it would be really er- easy for us to think, okay, this is about like international missions, uh, and this is about ministry that I'm not called to. So I want you to, I want you to hear this. God's calling all of us to ministry in some, some fashion. And so as you hear this, I want you to, this entire sermon, read it and hear it uh, for direct applications in the way that you're living your life in, in ministry. So let me read the text, and then we'll come back and work our way through. Now, uh, we've already read 12.25, so I'm going to start 13.1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. I mean, that is a, an amazing different uh, group. We'll come back. While, there were worsh- while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So... Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues and in the Jews, and they had John to assist them. That's John Mark. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar, anytime you read it, just means son of. So, in a, in a weird kind of crazy name, this guy's name is Son of Salvation. It's the exact opposite, but it's Son of Salvation. Um, Paul, will, you'll read, show that he's not that. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Paul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, that's the magician, Bar-Jesus or Elamus. Elamus means like sorcerer. Uh, he goes by either name. Uh, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. That's a bad, bad idea. So, but Saul, who was called Paul, there's the shift. For the rest of the book, he'll be Paul. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. So when Paul, we're going to read this, when Paul is ticked and looks intently at you, um, in the book of Acts, you're about to have a bad day. That's just the way it is. You'll see that in 16 as well. It's just, this is amazing. Uh, this is amazing. This, look what he did. And he looked at this magician. He looks at David Blaine and he says, you son of the devil. I'm just kidding. David Blaine's not the son of the devil. But he looks at this guy, Elamus, and he says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, watch, this is crazy. Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind. Unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking the people to lead him by the hand. So if you're messing with Paul, like he just makes you blind. That's crazy, right? And then the proconsul believed. 
So what happened with the proconsul? Here it is. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So we're going to go back, and I want to unpack this. You may be thinking um, to yourself when you're reading this, when I say, when you see this, there's a direct calling on the way you're supposed to live your life. You might be thinking to yourself, this is South Carolina. That's the Bible. Like, that doesn't happen. I've never been able to do that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't think that I'm supposed to necessarily, when I read the book of Acts, take this direct application on how I'm supposed to do ministry. So I want you to hear, uh, I want you to hear this. As much fruit and uh, boldness that they had in, in the book of Acts, we're to have the same kind of vigor and, and desire to do it. Derek Thomas says it this way. The church of Christ is never meant to be idle, luxuriating in its achievement, basking in the glow of blessing already attained. So just because we've seen success in the book of Acts, or even if you've seen success in ministry in your life, it never means stop, you're good, you don't have to do anymore. Um, the moment we've turned the mission of God into a museum, uh, then we've changed it completely. It, the, the, the mission of God is always supposed to be moving forward. It's not ever supposed to stop and just be a museum and say, look at what we used to do. It, you can do that, but it can't just be that. Um, if we don't evangelize continually, I can't remember who says this, it's not me, but if we don't evangelize, we fossilize. It's just the way it is. We always have to continually be pushing ourselves towards ministry. Um, Derek Thomas says this also. Missionary endeavor is a responsibility of the entire church. It is not meant to be a quirky fixation of the select few who are missionary minded. Not to have a heart for missions is the same as not having a heart for Jesus Christ. I want to read that one more time. Because if you can't say amen, you got to say ouch. Not to have a heart for missions is the same as not having a heart for Jesus Christ. It shows an indifference to what, to what brought the Savior into the world and what drove him to the cross. Missions is the heart of God. It is the beating pulse of the Almighty for the souls of men and women. To be cold towards missions reveals an indifference to what lies at the center of God himself. So when we read the book of Acts and you see this, I want you to realize every application I will make is directly to you. Whoever you are, it doesn't matter what you do, directly towards you. Now, um, as we read chapter 13, who did you think was the main character? I know we don't do this very often. I usually don't ever do it. But who do you think is the main character? You can actually say something here. Paul. All right. That's what we think. But uh, l- let, me, let me twist our minds to think a little bit different. You've probably heard this before, that um, the book of, of Acts is incorrectly named. If you go all the way back to the beginning, uh, it says at the very beginning, the Acts of the Apostles. That's what it says. And all my professors would say, this is incorrectly named. It's not the Acts of the Apostles. That's, that they shouldn't name it that. It's, it should be named the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's what they should name this book. So as you go back to 13, 1 through, uh, 1 through 12, I want you to notice that the main person making everything happen in verses 1 through 12 is not Paul. It's not Paul at all. Watch this. I, I'm going to point it out to you. So there they were, and look what it says in verse 2. They were worshiping and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart. And then it, look at verse 4. So being sent out, the Holy Spirit so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. The main player of what's happening 
in this narrative, in the entire book, is the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9. But Saul, who was also filled with the Holy Spirit, said, looked intently at him and said, and so even, and we know this, when it says, and the proconsul believed what he had saw occurred for his astonishment at the teaching of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. We know that from all over the text. So the main character in this text, and I would venture to say the book of Acts, is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. So um, the title of this sermon is the Holy Spirit's work in our ministry. The Holy Spirit's, this isn't Paul's ministry. This is the Holy Spirit's work, not just in Paul's ministry, but in ours. So as we're seeing the Holy Spirit's work in, this, in these 12 verses, this is really not just the Holy Spirit's work in Paul and Barnabas. This is the Holy Spirit's work in our ministry. So I want you to write these things in, in first person. This is what the Holy Spirit has done for me. The first one is in verse 3 is this. The Holy Spirit calls. The Holy Spirit calls. Um, you can go ahead and put up number one. The Holy Spirit calls. Look at this. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the Holy Court, of the court, sorry, of Herod and the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, here it is. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. There it is. To which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So here the Holy Spirit calls. He calls these five men to be in ministry. He calls every single one of us who are believers. The Holy Spirit here calls an amazing, diverse people. So this is very, very uh, diverse. Look at these people. You've got Barnabas, who is a teacher, one of the most encouraged. We have Simeon, who's also called Niger. This means black, and it means he's from uh, Africa. Lucius of Cyrene. Um, Lucius of Cyrene, he's from North Africa and could be, not for sure, not for sure. But Luke 23, 26, there's a Simon of Cyrene who carries Jesus' cross um, whenever he can't carry it anymore. And some commentators say he could be the same man that carried Jesus' cross and became a believer. Um, you also have Manan, who is a foster brother or an intimate friend of uh, Herod. Uh, so this man represents kind of an inroad into being able to have some ministry into the government. And then you have Saul, who also is known as Paul, a Jew who's radically converted, amazingly gifted, and unbelievably t- determined. So, I mean, this is a very diverse group. So here the Holy Spirit calls a diverse people to, call, to go and do ministry. And that's the same always. Like the Lord puts together quite different groupings of not just giftings, but even cultures in order to do stuff. So this, this is very ethnic and culturally diverse. And uh, if we'll notice, these, these are the guys who were the leaders. Remember, they were in the church plant in Antioch. And now he's taking them out and he's, he's, they're being pulled away. So he's pulling the best leaders likely of Antioch from this church and sending them away, which is always okay. It stinks to be the church when you're left with like, oh, we lost our best leaders. But this seems to be the pattern of the way the Lord does stuff. He calls best leaders to go start new endeavors and the church just figures it out. And you know what? They figure it out. God, God always supplies. But when did he call them? When did he call them? I don't want to breeze past this or diminish this because I think this is important when did he call watch while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting and then we can see in verse 3 they were praying so in the 
some type of context of a corporate gathering while they're there. We don't want to pass over this. We don't want to minimize this. In the midst of worshiping and prayer and, and, uh, prayer and fasting, the Lord calls. If you want to know the calling of God on your life, if you want to know the calling of God on your life, a good place, I know the Lord calls us in all kinds of places. I, I was at a camp, right? But a good place to know is to be continually in the gathering of your community week in, week out. And as you're worth, with them, worshiping day to day as a Christian should, you're going to hear from God. That's when you'll hear. So this highlights for us the importance, I think, of just continually gathering with the church. Because this is when he, he, when he speaks to them. I know he can speak in all kinds of times. But he speaks to them in this particular time. Not only did it in the... In the Uh, context of corporate worship but he did it when the people were in the context of an ongoing community being in an ongoing community not not moving yourself away and you know being a every once in a while kind of person but being an ongoing community of people 12 to 15 people they know you you know them is the holy spirit's intent and you when you're in there when you're doing that i think the lord calls us and gives us more direction on what he wants us to do um the church also sent them. Look what it says in verse 3. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them. So the church sent them off. They didn't go by themselves. Um, just a, a, another note for, for corporate prayer. Uh, just more of a side note. The, lead, the need of the lost drove this church to prayer. And prayer drove this church to missions. So they were so desirous of seeing Lost people come to know Christ. They gathered together in a, in a worship setting and prayed. This is how um, one commentator says, The need of the lost drove this church to pray, and prayer drove this church to missions. Prayerless churches will always have a poor vision of the needs and of the lost perishing. We will never see great advances in the cause of the gospel without first seeing the church on her knees in prayer before the Lord. Likewise, before the Lord begins to do a great work, he sets his people praying. This is why I plead with you almost weekly now to gather with us once a month as we do corporate prayer. It's, it's absolutely imperative that we have as many people there together as we pray because the need for the lost people drives church to people to pray and prayer drove these people to missions. And so we want to be so in tune with the Spirit, so desirous that people would get saved, that we absolutely see the need for ourselves to gather corporately to pray so that the Lord will begin to work and and give us direction while we're um, seeking His face. So the first thing is this. The Holy Spirit calls. Just like He calls them, He calls you. He's called every single one of us to be a part of the mission. Not only that, look what it says in verse 4. So... Being sent out by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit calls. The Holy Spirit sends. Number two, the Holy Spirit sends. The Holy Spirit sends. Now, this is, this is crucial, okay? Since the Holy Spirit has called everybody to ministry, if you're a Christian, your calling doesn't just call you and then you just kind of chill, right? The, Holy, the calling is always meant to be ascending, So if you're called, because you are, realize that since you're called, you're also sent. Every single one of you are already sent. 
You're not one day going to be sent because you're already living your life as a Christian. Living your life every day is being sent. Now, you might be saying to yourself, wait a second. Didn't we just read in verse 3 where it says the church sent them? Look at verse 3. They laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Well, wait, which one is it? Is it the church sending or is the Holy Spirit sending? Yes, of course. It's both. It's, it's not one or the other. So whom does the Holy Spirit send them out to? He sends them out to go reach the lost. Where does he send them? He sends them to people that have never heard the gospel before. And what does being sent by the Holy Spirit mean that we should do? Watch. Since they're sent, what are they supposed to do? Look at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sent out to Cyprus, and they arrived at Salamis. Here it is. What do they do? The Holy Spirit sends us, and what is he calling us to do when he sends us? They proclaimed the word of God. They proclaimed the word of God. So this means that every single one of us are called by God to proclaim the gospel. When he calls us, he sends us to proclaim the good news of the gospel. To proclaim that Christ is the one who came for us to put himself forward as a propitiation to take away the wrath and anger of God for you on your behalf. And if you would trust in him and believe in him, you can have forgiveness of your sin forever. This is our message. It is our one note we strike. We don't have like 25 notes. We have one note we strike. We can strike it in 25 different ways, but it's just the one thing that we say. All right? We don't have any other beats. We have one thing we say. We have one message. We're going to proclaim the word of God, which is tell them the good news of the gospel. If you don't know Jesus, then you should trust in Christ's work on the cross for you. Christ's willing death to go on the cross for you so that you can have eternal life. Now, as we're looking at this, I know you're saying to yourself, I don't know these places. This is just, when it, Seleucia and Cyprus and Salamis and Paphos, help me. All right, I'm going to help you. Here's the deal. Uh, I have a map again. So here, here's what's going on. Let's, let's pull up that map for us. So here we are. They're in Antioch, right? They set sail from Antioch over to Seleucia. They get on a boat and they set sail all the way over to Salamis. They, let, they, mail here, they land here on this island called Cyprus. And if you read it, um, I don't have it right in front of me. It says, they, they went all the way from Salamis, all the way over to Paphos. It's like a 90-mile hike. They're, I'm going to read it to you so I'm going to make sure I, you see it because it's pretty awesome. Um, here it is, verse 6. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, like, they don't know. I mean, they don't have Google Maps, right? So th- they're just thinking to themselves, we're, we're going to cover the whole island. That's what we're going to do. We're thinking, that's awesome. So they get into Salamis. They go all the way over to Paphos. They're eventually going to go up to here, but that's, that's next week. But that's what they're doing. They go all the way over. And whenever they get to Paphos, that's when they run into David Blaine. So we're going to get to that in a second. Um, but when they go there, they're willing to go through the entire island. Go a, a 90 mile. I mean, they're, well, go back to, for me. Go back for me. They're willing to hop from here down to Seleucia, take a boat all the way over, take an uh, a 90-mile trek, which takes some time all the way over to here. I mean, that's, that's how devoted they are. Since they realize they're called and they're sent, being sent to them means, like, we're actually sent. We're going to take some hard journeys and get all, get all around here and do what we're supposed to do. So look back at it. So they went down to Seleucia. So we know from Antioch, that means they went to the coast, to this coastal town, Seleucia. And it says, and from there they set sail to Cyprus. That's that big island. So they left Seleucia, and here it is. Um, they proclaimed the word of God. When they arrived at Salamis, they had this pattern. They proclaimed the word of God. They would go to the synagogues and the Jews. And they had John helping them. And they went through the whole island as far as all the way over to Paphos. And they came upon a certain magician. So 
You can go back to number two. So when they get there, they run into this magician, Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, son of salvation, which is ironic because he's not. um, And he's not the Jesus, he's just son of a guy named Jesus, um, who's also named Illimus, which you can see in verse 8. Illimus means like skillful one or even sorcerer. Um, And Paul's going to give him a nickname as well. You can see that we've already seen in verse 10, son of the devil. Um, So (laughs) Paul's nickname is maybe a little bit more... uh, Harsh. Anyway, um, so as we see this, I want you to notice the consistent blessing of the obedience of the missionaries. Whenever Paul and Silas get there, they proclaim the word of God, and the word gets out that they're doing this. And as they're doing this, the Lord's going to bless this endeavor. So they're, they're walking around, they're proclaiming the word of God, they're going to the synagogues. And because they're being obedient, because they're called and they're sent... The Lord's going to bless them, right? The Lord's going to bring about this guy, this proconsul, Sergius Paulus, who's going to hear about these, these two guys. And this guy, Sergius Paulus, he's an intelligent guy. And so he loves just to hear things. He's, he's very smart and he likes to hear people come and talk to him and tell them what they think. And he likes to weigh them and think on them and measure them. And so he's got Elimus, who's a sorcerer, who probably has some kind of skill set of, of talking. But he also hears about these other guys, Barnabas and Saul. And so he says, I want them to come to me too. I want to hear what they have to say. He, he, he's intelligent, and so he likes to hear different things and weigh them and, and, dis, and decide whether which ones he thinks are true, etc. And so the Lord is blessing Paul and Barnabas. He's giving them a platform to be able to go to the proconsul. I mean, this is a, a politically powerful man that they can go share the gospel with. That's pretty amazing. So um, I want you to notice, as they're being obedient to go, I mean, travel all kinds of places possibly they've never even been, the Lord blesses them and gives them a politically powerful person that, if gets saved, likely has some influence to share the gospel as well. So when they go somewhere else, they still have someone else here that's sharing the gospel and people are getting saved because of him, but really because God used Barnabas and Saul. Now, is there going to be opposition whenever we're obedient to being sent? Of course there's going to be opposition. That's what happens here. Elamis tries to turn the proconsul. You can see it in verse 8. Paul's harsh language is because what he does. In verse 8, it says, um, at the very end, Elamis opposed them. Here it is. Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Elamis is an, uh, an instrument of the devil if he's trying to turn people away from salvation in Christ. So, Paul's not just willy-nilly throwing out insults here. He's literally being as accurate as possible. You're trying to take Sergius Paulus away from Jesus Christ. That's the work of the devil. So you are doing the devil's work. And so um, there's opposition. There is opposition that that Barnabas and Saul. So I I don't want to paint a rosy picture. Like when you become a Christian and you're called and you live life sent, everything turns to roses. Everything's always awesome. There's going to be opposition. There's opposition for them. There's going to be opposition for you. Even in Rock Hill, you're going to have opposition. One commentator, speaking of the, of the opposition, says it this way. There is a cost to sincere service for Christ. If you never share your faith, you'll never look like a fool. If you never stand for righteousness on a social issue, you'll never be rejected. If you never reach out to the needy, you'll never be taken advantage of. If you never give your heart, it will never be broken. But if you seriously follow Christ, you will experience a gamut of sorrows, almost completely unknown to an unbeliever. But of course, you will also know the joy of adventure with the Lord of the universe and spiritual victory. 
So yes, there is opposition, but the benefits that the Lord lets us go through, even persecution is a benefit because we grow closer to the Lord, it's it's worth it. So the first thing is that we're called. The second thing is that we're sent. Now, um, let's finish this this text. In verse 7, it says, Now he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. Here it is, the summoning of Barnabas and Paul. He sought to hear the word of God. He's an intelligent man, and he likes to hear what people say. Um, And it says, But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn. This word turn here in verse 8 is the same word in verse 10. If you look over in verse 10, uh, it says, You son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked? That word crooked and the word turn is the same word in Greek. So Paul takes what he's trying to do and he, he tells him that's what you're, you're doing. You're making crooked. You're, you're, you're seeking to turn or make crooked the proconsul. And so Saul, who was filled with, with the Holy Spirit, said, and he, he uses that same Greek word in verse 10, saying, you're trying to turn them away. You're, stop making crooked the, the uh, straight path of the Lord. So anyway, we're coming back to the rest of it. But first I want you to look at verse 9. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at him and said. So here's the third thing. The Holy Spirit leads to speak. Leads us, if you will. That's obviously supposed to be there. But anyway, the Holy Spirit leads us to speak. First, the Holy Spirit calls us. Second, the Holy Spirit sends us. Third, the Holy Spirit leads us to speak. I I want you to realize this. I think, maybe not you, but in general, in North America, uh, Christians understand that we're called, understand that we're sent, but the actual speaking part seems to hardly ever take place. I'm going to befriend somebody and then maybe whenever, you know, we get to be about 85 and I've known them a good 40 years and I've built up this trust, unshakable trust, I'm going to share, I'm going to share the gospel with them. Like, it just seems like it takes us this overly ridiculous amount of time to share the gospel. The Holy Spirit leads you to speak. He leads you. As soon as they get there, they're proclaiming the word of God because the Holy Spirit led them. The Holy Spirit, if you're ever wondering, gosh, I'm just wondering, just met this person, should I share the gospel with them or not? You don't have to like, Text me or call me or email me or Joe or Jack or anybody in your community group. You know, should I share the gospel with them? You don't have to pray about that one. Yes, you should. You should share the gospel with them. Should I? Lord, yes, you should. Like, it's that fast. You know the answer that, that quick. Um, should you be winsome? Should you say it in a way that, that's going to help them lead them to the cross and, and not destroy it? Yes, you need to be smart the way you say it. But should you say it? Yes, you should. You should always speak the gospel to people. Um, it's absolutely essential for them in order to get it saved. So here, Saul is filled with the, by the Holy Spirit, and it leads him to speak. Now, the content of his, of his word is different than, than what you might say. No question, but we're coming back to that. I want you to notice in verse 9, though. But Saul, who is also called Paul, and this is the official name change for Luke in the narrative. He doesn't call him Saul anymore. From here on, he calls him Paul for the rest of the text. Um, and this was because... Uh, as Paul follows the Spirit's calling and sending, Paul changes his name from Saul to Paul. Paul changes his name. It wasn't like the other people where they said, Jesus is like, this is your name. Paul changes his name where 
He's not going to have, use his Jewish name Saul anymore. Instead, he's going to use his Gentile version of that name, which is Paul, because his calling in this huge shift is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you know who's in the ends of the earth? The Gentiles, not the Jews. And so Paul changes his name from Saul to Paul because he knows everywhere that he goes, those people are Gentiles. And if I call my name Paul instead of Saul, I have a better inroad. I have a better likelihood of reaching them. This is him fulfilling what he wrote later in 1 Corinthians 9 when he said, 9, 21 and 23, to those outside the law, those who are Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became the weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some, even by changing my name from the Jewish Saul to the Greek or Gentile Paul. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So, Paul changes his name because he's the, the, the um, disciple to reach the Gentiles. And now he just goes by the, the Gentile Greek name, Paul, because he wants to reach them. So anyway, back to the speaking. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he looks with boldness at this particular man and he speaks. Now, this is the exact same thing you should do. The content of what you may say is different. Nevertheless, the boldness that the Holy Spirit gives you is, is still there. So Paul speaks with boldness as he says this. Um, and you should as well. You might ask as you hear what he says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And then, you know, he makes him blind. Is this a Christian thing to do? Is this, is this right? Can, can, can Paul really look at this guy and just say, I want you to be blind now. Is that what believers are supposed to do? Um, I, I want to be, I want you to be, I want to be real clear here. Um, Paul isn't necessarily doing this. Okay? It's really the Holy Spirit. I've already said that the major player is the Holy Spirit. He's looking at him and he says, You're making crooked the paths of the Lord. And now, behold, look at this. The hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind. So this is God doing it, not him. Paul is simply just saying what's about to happen. But it's the hand of the Lord that's bringing us about. This is the righteous judgment of God, not Paul. This is the judgment of God that's happening. Paul was used by God as he talked, but this was the hand of the Lord bringing this about onto uh, David Blaine or Elimus. So now, I like David Blaine, by the way. His, his things blow my mind. I don't know how he does that stuff. He stabbed himself in the hand or whatever. That's crazy. Anyway, um, now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Isn't that interesting how he writes that? Um, he was leading a people astray, and now he needs people to lead him just physically through things. What's the result? Number four, as we're called, as we're sent, and as we speak, what happens? Boom, the Holy Spirit saves. That's what happens. The Holy Spirit saves. That's the pattern, at least, of the book of Acts. You may say, well, I don't ever see that. The book of Acts is making us think that when Christians are together and Christians are living in community and Christians are proclaiming the gospel, the people on the outside that aren't Christians want to join that community and get saved. That's what the whole book of Acts is about. It seems to be that if we live our lives that way, people get interested and want to get saved. Maybe not to the same level that they're having, but maybe it should be to the same level they're having. We have seen some of that, but 
just a cursory reading of the book of Acts should make you think, when Christians are together and being Christians, unbelievers want to be a part of that and get saved. The Holy Spirit saved. Now, this is where it gets awesome. Watch this. The proconsul, Sergius Paulus, believed when he saw what had occurred. Now, when you first think to yourself, well, um, he was just scared. Like, he saw the judgment fall upon Illimus and thinks to himself, well, that seems pretty bad. Like, I'm an intelligent man. If you don't believe in Jesus, you get blind. If you do believe in Jesus, then you don't get blind. So that sounds good to me. Um, So it was more out of fear of judgment. But I don't think it's just the fear of judgment that led him to salvation. Look at the rest of verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For, here it is, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So, don't miss that last sentence just thinking that, that Sergius Paulus was just converted because he was scared because he witnessed judgment of God on Elamus. He also heard the teaching. Paul and Barnabas and his, his uh, Antioch 5, <laughs> as they went out, they boldly spoke the word of God. And as they boldly spoke the word of God, Paul spoke boldly. God moved mightily and Sergius was radically converted. And you can take that equation and pray it in your life. You speak boldly, God moves mightily, and those that don't know Jesus around you are radically converted. Because of the teaching. You don't have to make people blind, like their friends blind, and they'll get saved. Now, here's what's interesting. This particular proconsul, Sergius Paulus, was the first completely pagan Gentile converted in the book of Acts, in the Bible. Cornelius was a, a Gentile, but he wasn't pagan. I mean, he, as you read chapter 10, he was clear that he knew the, the God of the, of the Old Testament and, and he knew who he was and he wasn't a pagan. But this is the completely first, completely pagan Gentile converted. So they're seeing some amazing fruit here. The Holy Spirit saves him. Now, what I don't want you to miss is the contrast that Peter's trying to paint. The contrast is this. As one's eyes who opposes uh, who opposes God, his physical eyes, Elamis, are, begin, are being darkened and closed. The other's eyes, the proconsul Sergius Paulus, spiritual eyes are being opened to the realities and beauties of the, of the cross. Luke's trying to help you see that. I think the reason why he chose blindness and not something else is to highlight this, this spiritual reality that the Holy Spirit saves as one who makes paths crooked, physically his eyes are darkened, the other who doesn't do that but believes and wants to understand his spiritual eyes are being opened. The Holy Spirit saves. So as we conclude, I want you to think about ministry this way. Every single one of you are called. Every single one of you are already sent. Every single one of you should be proclaiming boldly, because the Holy Spirit's leading you, proclaiming boldly the gospel and trusting the Lord with all the, all the uh, outcomes that whenever you do this, the Holy Spirit will save people. The Holy Spirit will cause their spiritual eyes to be opened to the realities and beauties of the fact that Jesus Christ came, lived the perfect life, willingly went to the cross so that none of us would have to perish. But every single one of us would have eternal life. Complete forgiveness right now for your sin. Now you can live in in glorious truth and reality with that right now. As a believer in Christ, you can bask in the in the reality that you have been saved. The Lord holds nothing against you in regard to your sin anymore. The gospel is that you're completely saved. 
That's good news to hear every single Sunday. And because of that, because of your thankfulness that that has happened to you, you are desperately wanting to set your face like these people, praying, God, give me people, and then I want to go out and I want to live my life seeing people come to know Christ. The major player here is the Holy Spirit. You'll never meet Paul until you're in heaven. You'll never meet uh, Lucius or Simeon or Menaean. We want to, but you know who's in this particular text that we can actually interact with right now? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is still alive right now. They're not, but he is. And he's in your life if you're a believer, leading you daily, reminding you of the good news of the gospel, of what Christ has done, and then empowering you with all kinds of boldness to be obedient to this, to be obedient to the ministry that he has already set before you. You may be Peter or you may be Paul, but God needs both. And so I just ask that you would be obedient to it. And let's, this year in 2017, see God do amazing things in our city through Remedy Church. Let's pray. Lord, be with us as we are sent this year. Be with us we are, as we are sent boldly to our city to proclaim the gospel. Uh, there's people around us that maybe we just barely know. We just barely know. Help us befriend them, come to know them, love them, serve them well. Because we're called by you, we're sent by you to proclaim the gospel. And Lord, would you save them? Would you save them? Help us love them, speak kindly to them, and proclaim the glorious realities of this truth, of the gospel, of Jesus. And would you save them? Help us pray for them. Help us love them enough, love the mission enough to set our face towards prayer. We know that uh, the mission is your heart, and we don't want to be away from that. So, Lord, I pray that because we love Christ, we would love what he came to do, which is to seek and save the lost. We would love his mission. I pray this all in the precious name of Jesus.